0: My guest today is Rupert Darwall. It's been uh, 11 months, I think, since we spoke last. Uh, You want to tell us a little bit about what's going on?
1: Yeah, a lot's been going on since then, Tom. Um, We've, um, very interestingly, the House of Lords, which is like the Senate, except they're emasculated. The Lords are actually, uh, they're unelected and emasculated, but they've just come out with they've been doing hearings on net zero and a a raft of eminent economists are basically saying it's going to cost an arm and a leg and that is a really big that is a big change which we we can come on to i think that's the that's the main that's the main change basically the wheels are coming off net zero but we can go into that
0: that that is great news do you want to go ahead and fire up your uh, presentation already should we do that? let's do that you could see that so on the left you've got um, a report
1: I wrote for the Real Clear Foundation. uh title, as you can see, is The Folly of Climate Leadership. And the reason I, uh, for that title is that Britain has made a great song and dance of being the first major economy to write net zero into law, that it's uh, brought about the st- steepest cuts in uh, carbon dioxide emissions, and all this is going swimmingly. And so I thought I'd take a chance to debunk all that. I mean, it is true that Britain is the first major country to write net zero into law, but the idea that it's going swimmingly is completely false. And here's something for you that, that is not particularly well known. Guess when Britain's carbon dioxide emissions peaked, Tom. Have a guess. Uh, the year 1995. No, it was in it was in the early seventies, early nineteen seventies. So we're actually looking at an economy that's that, for structural reasons, has had declining emissions for for decades before anyone got work. <laughs> you know the global warming start started going and decarbonisation at all. So uh, uh, part of what's been part of what we're saying is what the economy was going to do anyway, but uh, but since. So the the climate change act was passed in two thousand and eight, um, and which happened to cons- uh, coincide with the uh, global financial crisis. And you've then seen a big acceleration in in uh, CO two emissions. The, the emissions reductions are very big. Uh, uh, acceleration. But what you've also seen, Tom, is basically the British economy has stagnated (laughs) since 2008. Now, partly that's the after effects of the global financial crisis, which led to a lot of scarring on on the economy. But it's also the case that Pushing at the decarbonisation has had a very negative impact on energy costs, and that's had an impact both on living standards and uh, the productivity, labour and capital productivity of the economy, which have both both have um, have deteriorated. What I did in this study was do a deep dive into in Britain has. Uh, had the big six energy companies, which had of eighty to ninety percent market share of the of energy supply. And what I did was uh, go into their uh, filings that they had to give the regulator, and what those filings do is that they differentiate between. Uh, renewables, nuclear and thermal, thermal being uh, gas and coal generation. And what you see in that chart is the average price, average revenue per megawatt hour, which is effectively equivalent to price. And the top green lines, two green lines, you'll see, so that's the average price that their renewables, their wind and solar, mostly wind, were getting, which is over £100 per megawatt hour. And then at the bottom, you can see the the uh, grey and red and uh, ochre, I suppose it is, lines are the are the non non-renewables. So they were getting the 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 red is the thermal generation. That was getting around sixty, and then it was declining sixty pounds per megawatt hour. Nuclear was actually getting less than that. So basically, what you were having was the 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 renewables were getting twice the price of were getting twice the price of the electricity being generated from the generators that actually keep the lights on. Okay. So that's the big, that's the big concept we've got to get in our heads That the stuff that's intermittent gets rewarded twice as much as the uh, stuff that, um, the the, the capacity that you need to keep the lights on. Then if you look at prof, uh, then if you look at profitability, it's actually, it's actually even worse than that uh, because what you had with, uh, with the thermal generators is you had a huge amount of environmental uh, levies being placed on on them. So they were actually making, they were losing money per megawatt hour. Every megawatt hour they were generating, the average the average cost, the average profitability was, was negative. And you have the thermal generators taking enormous write-downs on their uh, coal-fired power stations. Um they took a write down in 2014 of of 1.4 billion pounds, which is you can see at the bottom on 2014 it's the, how, how it zigzags down. Meanwhile, the renewables were getting absolutely astr- astronomical um, profits per per megawatt hour, and you can see in one year they were actually getting their profits per megawatt hour exceeded the price per megawatt hour that the that the thermal generators were getting so the result of that the outcome of that is you've got massive overinvestment in wind and solar and un- underinvestment in dispatchable or non-intermittent capacity and this is quite a neat chart which shows you uh that the 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 decline in non-intermittent capacity and the rise in in wind wind and solar and the effect has been that um that the the huge increase in wind and solar capacity uh, since 2009 has meant that in 2009, for every one gigawatt, uh, one every one gigawatt of wind and solar capacity, there was 18.6 gigawatts of dispatchable capacity. So in in effect, the the impact on the grid and the economics of the grid and wind and solar, and then particularly their intermittency. Was very very manageable. It was is really insignificant. But by 2020, that had all changed. So for every one gigawatt of wind and solar capacity, you had only 1.7 gigawatts of non intermittent capacity. So basically, the the management of the grid becomes a story of how to cope with intermittency, and that that drives the drives up the costs of of non-intermittent capacity because they have to they have to ramp up and down uh they're not they'll they're, they're not pretty generating electricity for a lot of the time which is incredibly inefficient it also means their their co2 emissions per me- megawatt hour are, are, are higher because that that you know that, that you have to keep the um turbine spinning just so that they they're ready to ramp up and uh deliver electricity, supply electricity to the grid. So, and I think this is the most, in some ways, this is the most important slide of all, is what I would call the iron law of the so-called energy transition, Top, which is producing less with more is the essential fact of the uh, the energy transition. So what you're seeing there is that graph is showing output per megawatt of generating capacity. So that is... Wind and solar plus the thermal plus the nuclear, and what you see there is that there has been a 28% decline in the output or per unit per unit of generating capacity. So in 2009, 87.3 gigawatts of generating capacity was producing 376 terawatt hours of electricity. In 2020 just over 100 gigawatts of generating capacity was producing only 312 terawatt-hours of, of electricity. So you have more generating capacity producing uh, less electricity. And wherever you go, if, if, if decarbonisation in the US and having more renewables on the grid will have the same effect. This, this effect of you need more resources to generate lesser, less electricity, less energy. That's the long and short of, of the paper, but there's a lot more in it, which I'm
0: sure we can talk about. Okay, and that is a 76-page PDF we're talking about, right? And i put a link to it in the show notes so people can read all the details of that, right? Fantastic. So um, what is happening right now, then? You mentioned just this week there's been uh, some pretty high-profile blowback against net zero in the UK, right?
1: Um, I would, wouldn't say blowback. I would describe it as, as truth-telling. So the House of Lords have a uh, an economic affairs committee. They've been h- holding hearings, much like the Senate and the House in the US hold hearings, and they've that they have people up to give testimony. And they've had the former chief economist of the IMF, Olivia Blanchard, who basically told them it's a sort of fairy tale that that uh, there's zero costs. Next to nothing, there was dieter Helm so Dieter Helm, who's one of uh, Britain's best known energy economists who said very much the same thing and he's taken a real blast at the idea that net zero pays for itself, which is the story being being spun by politicians you know I, and I'm you know that happened in the u s basically net zero pays for itself that is completely that's completely untrue it is net zero is extraordinarily expensive in the British context we're talking about trillions. Uh, several several trillions. I think in the U.S. context, you'll be talking ten to twenty trillion dollars or something like that. You know, you're talking absolutely astronomical amounts of 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 capital that needs to be deployed to produce. As I've indicated from that chart, to produce less, that is the key fact. All that capital produces less electricity. It, you have a less reliable grid as well. Uh, into the bargain, for paying a lot more for it and you'll see you see much higher electricity rates so uh, if you're looking at uh british households are paying around 75% more per kilowatt hour for the electricity british businesses compared to us businesses the differential is is british businesses are paying three to four times uh, what us businesses are paying Now, if you think that that they they're, some of them are competing against each other either as importers or exporters or whatever or competing in world markets, it's basically leading to the to to accelerating the deindustrialization of Britain. So you're ba- we're basically exporting manufacturing jobs to China. You know that that's where they're going.
0: Do you think reality uh, is sinking in with politicians in the UK? Like I see a headline here: Starmer's net zero U-turn is his most shameless yet. And do you, do you think uh, the political class is starting to get it? um i think the thing about that's
1: a hard question to answer because you can't it's very difficult to get into the minds of these To get into the minds of these people, and it's not clear that there's coherent reasoned economic thinking going on i think with the with the labour Party in the twenty eight billion it was two things. First of all, the fiscal situation is is quite tight, and secondly, they didn't want they don't want to go into the next election, which will be held sometime this year, um, with the Conservatives saying, "Well, there's this 28 billion, which means uh, a tax bombshell. Labour's going to raise taxes." So I think it was more, if you like, pragmatic rather than a realization that net zero is a disaster. The the, the the problem for all polit- all main political parties where they stand now is that they they wrote into law. They all supported writing into law after an eighty eight minute debate, no less in in the House of Commons. After which there was no vote. So there was eighty eight minutes of of debate on net zero. There was there was no vote at the end of it, and then. The minister signed a statutory instrument and the net zero target became law, which is something that for all the faults of the way Congress makes laws and stuff like that, you, can't, you guys can't do that. that. That will never happen. So here, we effectively, we've got, I don't know it said, but basically, you've got Parliament was a rubber stamp for that. And because all parties are signed up to that effectively, they can't go and question it. They have the government of the day has a legal duty, a statutory duty to meet the uh, net zero target. So net zero emissions uh, by 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 2050. So all they're all trapped in this. And the smart thing to, for Sunak to have done, and in fact, I think what Liz, Liz Truss, his predecessor, had the opportunity as a former foreign secretary, she could have said, look, the, the war in Ukraine has fundamentally changed the energy outlook. Um, we can't go on. We've either we, we've got a choice. We can either do net zero, or we can help Ukraine beat the Russians. We can't do both. We can't. You know, th- th- you could frame it like that. But she did. She, if she, if it, had, if the thought had occurred to her, she didn't do anything. And furthermore, she appointed as her chancellor at ex- the exchequer. Um, a politician whose previous job was enforcing net zero. So there was really no chance. So you basically got the polit- British political class are really up to their necks in net zero. Will that change after the next election when the Conservatives go into opposition? I think I think then the, the political calculus changes quite a lot. Once they're freed from being in government... Uh, they can have second thoughts about the wisdom of net zero, and it's obviously looking worse. know, net zero is looking worse by the day, so they can actually come to it a bit fresh.
0: So I'm way behind you on what's happening politically with the election coming up, but is it a matter of throwing out the old and bringing in new people who are not into net zero? Or not? Um,
1: no. It, what What it will be is you, we've had the Conservatives got elected in 2020, and they've had now had... Basically, the first term was a coalition. There was then, uh, there have been two elections. There was an election in uh, uh, 2015, which the Conservatives won outright. There was another election in 2017, which the Conservatives very narrowly run won. And then Boris Johnson had that scorch of an election in December 2019, when he got, got a, an 80-seat majority. He had, you know, he the world... Britain stood was at his feet in terms of, of what he going But the Conservatives completely blown that for a number of reasons. And so we're due another general election by by the end of this year, essentially. And the Conservatives are way behind in, in the opinion polls. They basically stay, don't stand a chance. They've shot their bolt. Everyone's fed up with them. They've got nothing new to offer the country. On the other hand, Labour is not – not the public is not excited by the Labour proposition. And basically, Labour is completely trapped by net zero, by the commitment that I've talked, previously talked about, about the, the commitment to net zero, the legal commitment to produce to, – to pursue net zero. So it's not like – voters want the Conservatives out, but there's very, very little enthusiasm for Labour – but once the Conservatives are out, it is a chance for them to think: What did we really screw up on? And net zero will be one of the things that they will reflect. Think: Well, actually, this was a terrible idea, and they can have, they can come back to it with, um, you know, with much clearer vision of of what what went wrong.
0: What is happening with the power grid in the UK? Are you uh, under threat of it going out if the wind doesn't blow, et cetera, for a long enough period of time? Well, that that
1: uh, risk increases. Because um, basically all the coal-fired, all but one or two coal-fired power stations, have been taken off the grid. They've actually been. You can go on to go, if you Google and look at British coal-fired power stations, you'll see pictures of them being blown up. I mean they took. They took. Politicians took absolute relish in blowing in this in, extraordinary acts of industrial vandalism, blowing up coal-fired power stations, because coal has been completely demonised. It's a really important thing to. Understand that coal was, is, and will remain the cheapest way and most reliable way to generate electricity, and that 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 goes to the US as well. The idea that fracking fundamentally made natural gas generation cheaper than um, than cheaper than coal-fired Coal coal is the cheapest fuel source uh, for 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 electricity, but so Britain basically has has no more coal. Labour has pledged to make uh, the grid carbon neutral from 2030. The Conservatives from 20, 2035. Both both targets are absolutely pie in the sky. Obviously, Labour's is, is more so because they're do, attempting to do it in in um, in six years. It's, it's it's in, it is impossible. It can't be done. But to your point, yes, it does make when you take dispatchable capacity off the grid, you make the grid and you you put in more um intermittent generation you make the the grid less you, you you make the grid far less stable so the risk of of blackouts brownouts or whatever you care to call them is high but what does happen well, the, the answer to that is 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 they just throw money at the problem so to give you an idea a couple of years ago we have a capacity market um system so you basically pay power stations just to be on standby and the cost of the electricity, I think it was in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one, something like that, was two hundred and twenty four pounds per megawatt hour. So you're talking about two hundred and eighty dollars per, per megawatt hour, which is a colossal, it's a colossal amount to be paying for electricity, an incredibly inefficient way to to run a um generating fleet.
0: So I'm just wondering. It seems like this whole idea of politicians celebrating themselves for blowing up their own local power station is about as crazy as it gets. And do you think they're going to scrub those uh, photos and videos from the internet so people can't look at them ten years from now? <laughs> um, that's a hard one. I mean, they, they take. Uh, they take great pride in this.
1: So. So Alok Sharma, who was the president of the Glasgow uh, Climate Conference, was that 2021? He's, you, you can find a picture of him on the web of, of blowing up. I can't remember which power station it is and being very proud and you know, doing the plunger thing and the thing going, just collapsing in a cloud of dust. Um, coal, it is absolutely extraordinary the extent to which coal has been demonized. And particularly in the Labour Party, The the, the Labour used to be the party of the coal miners, right? There you see the National Union of Mine Workers was affiliated to the Labour Party. Um, mine workers were considered, coal-, coal miners were considered, you know, the, you know, they were the aristocracy of the, of, of the working class. And it, all that's changed now. So unbelievably, um, there was a planning application for a new coal mine, um, in Cumbria, which would produce coal, very high quality coal for use in steelmaking, and the Labour Party opposed that. The Labour they opposed, and it was very clear: this coal won't be used in in to pasture. No, 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 you can't use coal for power stations, but it would be used in steelmaking, and even, Labour even opposed that, opposed that. And then Labour. The politicians are all very puzzled when the Indian owners of Port Talbot, the Port Talbot steelworks in South Wales, um, are closing down closing down the steelworks because they're paying a massive carbon tax on on the the coke they use for smelting, which obviously makes it uneconomic. So you know the idea of green steel, you know, you know but green steel is incredibly expensive. Plus you've got to pay the electricity, which is has carbon taxes on top of it and environmental levies and so forth. So it's basically uneconomic. So we basically lost the steelmaking industry. It's not just coal mining and and the coal which is completely gone. It's also steelmaking. So as I'd sort of indicated earlier, what you're doing, you're basically driving out your well, you know, your manufacturing but it goes. You can see there's a hierarchy. So heavy manufacturing, which is more energy intensive, goes out first, and then then as you go down. And of course, then you've got the thing with the the problems with the automotive industry. and what remains of the British car making industry is under threat from mandates to stop selling um, internal combustion engine cars. And they have to they have to increase car ma- car manufacturers have to to every year from this year they have to sell an increasing proportion of their car sales their vehicle sales have to be evs and if they don't if they don't make it they 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 basically have a have to pay a fine so you're paying a tax you'll be basically paying a tax on your internal combustion engine sales so and that that of course that 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 drives that that further drives deindustrialization and then politicians are the to who they kind of turn around and they blame they blame companies for why are you making these people redundant but you know why are you closing these factories well it's actually your policies that is net zero that is caused is, is drive is is driving these closures
0: do these politicians though really have a vision of just transitioning so you're building electric cars using just wind and solar that's it that's what they're thinking what are they thinking? And they think they think the uh, rare earths
1: and lithium and all that sort of thing comes, you know, gets conjured up on the ground. There are no supply chain problems. That the enormous increase in demand for these these minerals won't affect prices. No, there, there is no. When it comes to net zero, there is no capacity for rational thought. They just kind of they just swallow
0: green make believe, Tom. Yeah, do you think it's that they're just coming from a world of uh, academic of, of uh, academics and uh, models, and the uh, have these people had real jobs in the real world so they know uh, how things are made? Um, it's partly that, but I think there's also, you can't, I think the thing is,
1: as you know, Tom, from the climate wars, that you can't question any element of the program, otherwise you're your your denier or your your you're impeding net zero you're doing terrible things you're putting the the survival of the planet at risk so that means you can't have any critical assessment of the of the this nonsense that's coming out and i've seen so in my report i've got i one of the things i do is i look at we have a we have the treasury uh, the treasury did a net zero assessment and our equivalent of the Congressional Budget Budget Office, which is the Office of Budget Responsibility, also did a net zero assessment, and I go through those. And the make believe in that in those analyses is just extraordinary. So you have the Treasury saying, "Oh well, the new investment should increase productivity growth," as I've shown you in that slide. You can see capital productivity is on a downward slope. <laughs> you know, and they just ignore the data. They don't even look for the data. They just Happy to go on or make believe on on green make believe. They never challenge. So we have under the Climate Change Act that this body, this so-called independent body called the uh, Climate Change Committee, was created to advise the government. Actually, it basically tells the government what to do on decarbonisation, on energy policy. And not once has the government criticised or analysed or done any due diligence on the basically the rubbish this this uh this green body i mean it's completely taken over by environmentalists that they come out with so it's they they never challenged they never questioned its costs on net on net zero because if you do that you get it's just the wrong thing it's wrong think basically it's wrong think to say well actually this is going to have a big cost that's why when we started this discussion that what uh, mainstream economists like Olivier Blanchard are now saying is really consequential because it's it's putting into the public domain these forbidden thoughts, these impermissible thoughts that actually net zero has a huge, huge cost tag on it. And that's going to start making people think. The other thing to bear in mind, and we talked about the costs of net zero, but um, what what no one talks about are the benefits, the so-called benefits. So again, in the, what what I looked at is in the 11 years since passage of the Climate Change Act in 2008, um, there's a table in there which says um, by how much Britain's uh, emissions have have fallen, whilst the rest of the world's have increased. And basically, Tom, 11 years of Britain's emissions reductions, which are quite substantial for a country like Britain, were wiped out by the increase from the rest of the world in uh, 140 days. 11 years' worth. So you're basically doing all this to have a pinprick impact on global emissions.
0: Uh, What do you think of this dynamic that I'm seeing in my life that five years ago, generally people were just, uh, if they saw it on cable news or CNN, they were believing it, not asking questions. But all of a sudden, all sorts of people that I know personally – are starting to say, I don't believe what they told us about the pandemic, and I don't believe uh, all sorts of other stuff. I'm seeing a lot of awakening like that myself, uh, just in my life. Are are you seeing anything like that? I'm not... It's not come... I haven't
1: seen... I haven't seen anything like that. I... I thought the Ukraine war and our... And... Europe's dependence on Russian natural gas, uh, exports of na- natural gas f- um, from, by Gazprom, would lead to an awakening. But actually, what the climate-industrial complex did very successfully is they said, well, look, we, if we have natural gas, we're relying on Vladimir Putin, this evil dictator. But he can't stop the wind blowing and the sun shining Right, that's the logic. I mean, can you beat that? And they kind of say, "This is our, this is how we get energy independence. We make ourselves totally rely on the weather to generate uh, our electricity, and we're going to be better off." And that lip, that is the that is the extent of the think the the, the thinking on that. Now that may that may may change a bit, but I don't I don't really see. it. I think in the U. I think where you've seen it in the U.S. is the evs are getting the thumbs down big big time and that is a real i think that that's a, a an eye opener. we haven't got there yet on on the ev thing basically what's happened is on in terms of vehicles is that private uh private car buyers uh, 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 at a declining share of the market they can't afford new cars um the, the cost of an entry-level car has gone up in the last 10 years has gone up. I think it was about 20, 20 or 30% over the last 10 years. And that's before all the EV stuff has has come in. And so what you're seeing is that the people who are buying cars are, are businesses who buy it for their em- employees. So it's fleet, it's, it's mainly fleet buyers. So the whole EV thing hasn't, I don't think has quite, it doesn't have that consciousness that that i'd see in the us where basically private private owners are shunning evs and saying this is not for me these don't work you know you get you drive it in a blizzard and and the battery goes flat that's great you know that's that's really not the thing that I, you know we're not seeing that yet
0: is there still a dynamic though in the UK where if uh, people are buying school buses or the post office is buying vehicles that they're saving the planet by buying electric vehicles?
1: Yeah, there's quite a, there's a there's a quite quite a bit of bit of that. Yeah, I think the main thing, Tom, is just the wishful thinking and duplicity involved in net zero, and eventually, as you say, reality comes comes and bite bites you and um, that reality, there is some, you know, the the reality is is now catching up, and particularly the costs and the fact that British economy has been essentially treading water since two thousand eight, which is a very very long time. There was a there was an article in one of the papers the other day saying British living standards have been stagnating for for the longest or fallen by. Fallen by more than than in in recorded history, kind of thing. So there's this thing of the the populace, pop, households being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And but I would say that with the political classes, the penny hasn't dropped yet. And whereas in in the US, you have a much more open political system because you 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 kind of the party grip is much much weaker uh individuals go out they win primaries and then they go and compete for votes and so forth and also republicans are far more uh, there're very few republicans now who 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 kind of who are, who are advocating this climate stuff and so it's a much more there's much more debate in the US here it's really it there's very very little debates to give you an idea the bbc the BBC has a market share of news shows around about 70%. I mean, it is is the leading, it's the leading broadcaster. It's where people get, most people get their news from. And it is totally, it's totally wedded to the net zero climate, uh, climate uh, story alignment. And so you've got, you've got a lot of suppression of, of debate, essentially. You won't have, you won't have people critical of, the so-called energy transition on any BBC, on any BBC show.
0: So do you have any active politicians in the UK right now that come right out and say this is a cult and a scam? It's completely crazy because we're getting that in the US. Yeah, We've always, and, and really
1: you've had that in, I mean, Donald Trump, for example, has always gone on, you know, being been saying that. Uh, there is no front-rank politician in Britain who, who has come close to saying that. You have them saying someone like Jacob rees is might be the closest, um, and he says, well, if net zero makes poor people poorer, we should really think again, right? Which is a bit wet, isn't it? Isn't that a bit wet? Just sort of, we, we know it makes people poorer. Just get on with it. Just say it. Go out and say it. Um, this is a formula for miserizing the vast majority of families in this country but they won't they're not they haven't got there yet and until they get there i don't think there is a um you're not really going to open up the debate i mean as i said earlier there there are these small i think the i think economists saying well actually net zero comes with a huge <laughs> uh, price tag um, that is beginning, that is a trend, that is a move in the right direction, and there will be more debate. And I think things will change after the election. But not, not before then. There won't be... Net zero will not be an issue at the next election, unless someone like Nigel Farage and, and Reform UK makes, makes it one. So they're one of the... They're the successor to the Brexit party. And Nigel Farage is the closest thing Britain has to Donald Trump. And... If he decided to have a go on net zero, you know, I think that could, I think that could stir things up quite a lot. But so far, he's not shown a great deal of inclination.
0: I'd like to get back, uh, I'd like to get back to what you said about the BBC. It sounds like that the mainstream media may be doing a lot better in over there than it is in the U.S. Because I hear numbers about how the uh, Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson are getting maybe ten to one hundred times the ratings of CNN or the viewership of CNN on some days. That uh, CNN. I don't know if that's at at all an equivalent of the BBC, but uh, our mainstream media, to me, it looks like it's dying pretty quickly over here. Um, Yeah, we've so we have. First of all,
1: um, free-to-air broadcasting is regulated by um, by a, a media regulator called Ofcom, and they're all. So basically, we've got BBC, ITV, and Sky, and they're all saying that on climate and energy, they're all saying the same thing. They're all singing from the climate industrial complex hymn sheet. Um, the pay, the the newspapers, newspapers are now kind of uh, less important. But so the Telegraph is, is skeptical, is hostile to net zero, I'd say, uh, more or less. Um, but most of the media, most of the media is. Is in favour. I mean, net zero is seen as this sort of thing that we all believe in, and it's something that Britain's good at, and it's what I call climate jingoism, right? You know, this,
0: and they still they still go on about it. It's just assumed that everybody believes in it, I guess. Uh, How about uh, GB News? Is that uh, making any more inroads or no?
1: Yeah, GB News is making inroads, but its market share is quite small, and I think. I think, come a Labour government, um, they'll find they 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 will find a way to neuter uh, GB News. I think Ofcom, which is, as I mentioned, is basically a censorship body when it comes to broadcast news. Um, I think they'll do what they can to terminate it. It's clearly it's it's it sticks out. GB News is the one is is the one outlet that, he, that is really questioning. Is really questioning, or and and has voices, permits voices to be on its shows that question it. Otherwise, you don't, you don't, you don't get it.
0: Yeah, there's uh, uh, Paul Burgess. He's been on my podcast. And I think he is regularly on Sunday shows there talking about uh, climate realism on yeah. GB News.
1: Yeah, that that is. So GB News is the exception to the otherwise blanket media ban on people who question, who oh, question net zero.
0: So I'm just looked it up here. Uh, it's kind of interesting to me that I can look at my YouTube analytics and right now and l- last month, 25% of my audience is from the U S and 22 is from the UK. I'm kind of surprised there's that many people in the UK that, uh, that are, uh that's uh, terrific. That's a-
1: that is absolutely terrific that you've got that reach. I think, um, in my, um, last book, green tyranny, the penultimate chapter was called spiral of silence and, that the the concept of the spiral of silence. I don't know if I talked to you about this before. It was it came from this. It, the concept came from this German pollster called Elizabeth Noelle Neumann. Absolutely brilliant uh, pollster. Probably the most important polling expert in the second half of the twentieth century. She studied in the U.S. In, in about the 1930s, she studied in the U.S. I think with George Gallup. She was so she was really on top of it. And the interesting thing, Tom, is she worked at the during the Nazi period. She had a brief spell working at the, what was it, the Ministry of Popular Enlightenment or whatever, under Doctor jo- Joseph Goebbels. But she understood propaganda and she understood the impact of what she called. She called people's views and their, and what they think is their social skin. And people are very conscious of having an opinion that can't be uttered. And the concept of the spiral of silence is if, if people don't hear people other people agreeing with their opinions, they fall silent. And eventually, those opinions get so marginalized, they lose. People actually can't, they can't even think though Think those things because the words aren't being articulated, and so you can just push, you can just push if you like, climate scepticism and energy realism right to the margins until it disappears. And that has been, that is the strategy of the climate industrial complex that we see time and time again, is to. This is what Senator Sheldon Whitehouse said: is basically to close down debate because they know if there's debate they lose so how your show in your show in giving people so that people know that actually these these are ideas that they also believe in and gives them the words and the concepts to articulate their their beliefs and are there it's incredible an
0: incredibly important function that you're performing uh, thank you. Uh, there is this uh, movie coming out, the Great Global Warming Swindle uh, sequel called Climate. The movie will be out in the next month yeah. or so. And I think it's coming out at just the right time because I, I keep saying I think the worm is already turning. I think uh, people are already, at least the people I know, are, feel more free to speak out against this. And I think there's huge strength in numbers. And as a few people uh, speak out, it'll snowball. I, th- I could see this uh, falling apart pretty quickly when that happens. Or maybe I'm over optimistic. Yeah.
1: No, I don't think you're being over optimistic. I wrote an I wrote an article, actually I pinched someone else's idea on this. Um I think it I think it would be like the collapse of communism. It'll be something that happens you know for, 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 with communism for years and decades, people had to subscribe to this and the, even though they knew it was they knew it was false and they didn't like it. And then overnight, almost overnight. It shattered, and it, it it just. And I think it. I think I think with climate, I think climate and energy, it will. It, it could well be like that. The thing that the, the the thing that resists that in a way is that the elites in particularly in Britain are going to look really bad, having got it so badly wrong. And whereas in in the American political system, more or less half are already realists that's not that's not the case. That's not the case here I mean I would say you're talking about eighty to ninety percent of them are these you know signed up to net zero or sort of mouth net zero platitudes won't confront net zero and say actually net zero is net zero is why one of the big reasons why the British economy is performing so so badly. I'll give you a case in point, so if you go to today's Financial Times. There's a big article by by the chief economics writer, uh, Chris Giles, in the Financial Times, and it's going on about Europe's productivity challenge and what it needs to do and this, that, and the other. There is not a single mention of net zero in there and the so-called energy transition. I mean, how you can write about European, the performance of European economies and not whether you support net zero or not and not see actually this is a really important factor that is driving economic outcomes and changing the structure of europe's economy how you could do that it just but that it's is it self-censorship or is it some kind of refusal that people refuse to acknowledge what is patently staring them in the face i just don't know tom but all i can do is observe it and say it's there
0: Another thing that makes me happy is I listen to a wide range of podcasts on all sorts of different subjects, and uh, for years, when climate change would come up as an aside, they would kind of say, oh, yeah, we are probably all going to fry, blah, 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 and now, over and over in the last recent months, when it comes up, they're consistently scoffing at it. Joe Rogan is scoffing at it, and uh, Aaron Rodgers, and all these medical freedom people, tons of people now, suddenly, they're, they're not like, focused on it for minutes on end. When it comes up, It's uh, we don't really believe in it. It's kind of a joke. I'm loving that. Yeah, I think I think what you said about the pandemic and public
1: health policies and the link with climate and net zero is absolutely right. That that there is clearly a linkage. In we were sold a bill of goods (laughs) over the pandemic, and that puts a big question mark about what experts are telling us um on on climate i think that's absolutely right i would say that that i think that natural that natural instinct to question and challenge is much more present in in the in the us okay than, than it is here i think that's a cultural thing and you know all credit to, to america for having that except of except of course for the what you, uh, the uh the, the verdict in the uh, Michael Mann uh, yeah. defamation case, which is really something else.
0: That's right. I wanted to mention that you wrote a great article about that case, and I'm putting a link to that article so people can uh, read up on it. Do you want to mention anything here about that case?
1: Yeah, I, th- I, mean, it, I mean, it's worth recalling that Michael Mann's ho- hockey stick paid an enormous. had an enormous impact on the development of the climate change orthodoxy because what it purported to show is it purported to show two things first of all that the industrial revolution caused this huge spike it caused a huge spike in in global temperature and secondly that from the year uh, from AD 10, uh, 1000 uh, and the temperatures were declining and they erased the medieval warm period. And the medieval warm period, uh, before Michael Mann came on for the scene, the mi- medieval warm period was absolutely accepted by climatologists. And there's a case, so during this, the wa- medieval warm period, which now uh, the modern orthodoxy says didn't exist, the Vikings, as you know, settled Greenland. Um, and one of the Vikings, Eric the Red's nephew, uh, swam a mile or two across a Greenland fjord. Well you think I mean, would even today with these you know so sort of nicely warm temperatures that were apparently would would you Tom would you swim across a Greenland fjord? And they weren't such good swimmers in those days. They do anyway. Um so they so Michael Mann achieved two things. He 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 basically gave the modern uh, view, the, the contemporary view of, of climate change, the medieval warm period went away. And the medieval warm period was a really big problem for the climate crowd because it showed that the, the amplitude of natural variability was much greater than than they want us to believe now. And it also showed that actually societies could do very well in a period of, of unusual warmth. You know, we're meant to believe against... Against our own instincts, really, that that having a warming climate is a is is a, is a terrible terrible thing because most of us prefer summer to winter. <laughs> you know, more more people die. You know, the cold death versus warm death thing. Now, so what happened? Michael Mann took uh, Rand, Simberg, uh, uh, and Mark Stein to court over two things, two articles that they published in in 2012. Um, And the verdict came out a couple of weeks ago, basically saying the jury said two things. First of all, they couldn't really find that Michael Mann had been uh, damaged in any way by by these articles, so they awarded him $2 in damage to compensate him for the damage to his reputation. But they found Simberg, I think, at $1,000, and Mark Stein... A million dollars and what that jury what i should say this this trial was in uh in washington dc with uh six good and true washingtonians you know of, of sure completely politically unbiased Washingtonians. you, you know is it 80 or 90 percent uh democrat there something might be over 90
0: maybe i don't know i think well, it is maybe 110 percent <laughs> anyway
1: we um so, uh, and they basically meted out punitive damages as a, not just to uh, really to, to, to finish off Mark Stein, because they clearly, he's an incredibly accomplished conservative uh, commentator, absolutely brilliant, a brilliant speaker, brilliant mind. So they just wanted to really, really go for him, but also to uh, deter anyone from speaking out against being climate heretics, basically, and and this is the land of the First Amendment, Tom. This is the land of the First Amendment where where this has happened. So, in my view, it's a it's a complete tra- travesty. Um, so, I've written I've written that all up. The stuff about the med- medieval warm periods in there, the the stuff that uh, Michael Mann did t- to get his hockey stick. That what you know, one of the things in there in in a later version of the hockey stick. There were these Finnish geologists who looked at uh, sediment from an, uh, uh, a lake in Iceland, and they they did a temperature reconstruction, uh, which did show medieval warm period. <laughs> and you know you know what you know what the uh, Michael Mann and his co-authors did to, to, yeah. to, to erase the medieval warm period—they turned that graph
0: upside down. <laughs> was that an accident or was it on purpose? They did it twice, right? They turned it upside down twice? They did
1: it more. Yeah. They did it. They did it more yeah. than once, yes. They did it more. The quotes are in there. You can see that. You know, I've just said it. And, 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 whoever you know, readers, you can make up your own mind about what you think about what Michael Mann was up to. Uh,
0: I'm going to read an entire paragraph from your, uh, from your article, if that's all right. Super interesting to me. I uh, quote, the trial closed with Mann's counsel, John Williams, making a naked appeal to the jurors' political prejudices. Williams urged the jury to award punitive damages so that no one will dare engage in, quote, climate denialism, just as Donald Trump's, quote, election denialism needs to be suppressed. Uh, In 41 years of trying cases to juries, John Hinderocker wrote on the Powerline blog, I have never heard such an outrageously improper appeal. So they actually mentioned Trump, right? This is John Williams, who is uh, Joe Camel's lawyer as well, right? Same guy. Yeah. I mean, it's it's blatant. It's absolutely blatant. You
1: you really don't have to be, you know, you don't have, it's there in black and white what happened in in that courtroom. And it is designed to do what we're, what what actually we're challenging, which is it's designed to suppress debate. And when there's, the more debate we have on it, the the weaker this, this, this thing will be.
0: I do have one more quote I'd like to read here, talking about the influence of the hockey stick. This one's from Gerald North, a uh, leading atmospheric physicist. Back at a time, he said, quote, The planet has been cooling slowly until 120 years ago when, bam, it jumps up, end quote. It's pretty amazing that uh, that is not what the temperature record did. Then he also said, quote, We've been breaking our backs on greenhouse detection. But I found the one thousand year records more convincing than any of our detection studies end quote for man, the hockey stick was his ticket to climate superstardom. some excellent stuff there,
1: yeah, I think that that's what the importance of the hockey stick it's very, very hard to overstate how how important it was in if you like not brainwashing about it so when we when 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 we hear when Climatologists say 2023 was the highest, was the warmest year ever recorded. You know, they're talking about, they're talking about the the hockey, they don't, we don't know. We don't know what global temperatures were in, during, during the medieval, medieval uh, centuries. Yet there is, they're basically relying on the hockey stick to come out with these, with, with, with these statements. So we're kind of we, we, they are climatizing us to this is a period of exceptional, never before, and not for a hundred thousand, you know, all the stuff that they, and it's based on very, very, very dodgy statistical analysis, which I go, go into in that in in that article.
0: And there's these whole questions like, uh, what? Uh, there's a five thousand year old tree stump, and it's located way north of the current tree line in the northern hemisphere. Uh, why? Yeah, and and,
1: and then you read these occasionally stories in the press about how a retreating glacier in Greenland, right, a retreating glacier in Greenland, uncovers a Viking settlement. Well, how did they, Tom, how did they build villages under glaciers?
0: Yeah, it's pretty amazing.
1: I mean, it's pretty, the technology they must have had to do that.
0: I have heard that there are some areas that have been melting lately that uh, smell like sheep. That you can smell if there were sheep that lived there way before it uh, froze up, and now you can smell them again.
1: That's very true. Oh, the Uh, other thing—the other thing that um, I touch on on the report we've been discussing, not the uh, hockey stick, um, is when. So you get official analyses of. Climate financial risk, okay, and and you know the risk to the to the economy and of climate catastrophe. And um, so what they do is they posit these tipping points. You know the climate tipping points. And once there's been a tipping point, we're into catastrophe. We're into this new climate regime, and no one knows what it will be like except all the oceanside uh, town uh, will will be inundated, all that kind of stuff. And it, the, the earliest tipping point is the melting of the greenland ice sheet right and anyhow if you go to the ipcc's most recent assessment report the sixth assessment report you look up when this is likely to happen a a total melting of the greenland ice sheet they're talking about tom multiple millennia multiple millennia so this is kind of and if you think where we are now if we're talking multiple millennia back we're talking about the Egyptian times, right? Do you, do you see what I mean? So it's that far in time. So how on earth can we... And yet what they do... So when they do um, stress modelling for... Climate stress modelling for banks and insurers and the financial system, you've got to incorporate a climate tipping point like the Greenland ice Sheet, which is due to happen in 2050. They'll say, well, you've got to... There's a risk it'll happen, you know, mid-century. I mean, it is it's it's not just bonkers, Tom.
0: It's dishonest. It's incredibly dishonest. Uh, when you mentioned tipping points, I thought you might mention that they told us that at one point five, there's a tipping point, and then it runs away, and we all die quite quickly, or something. But then they said, "Hey, we just hit the one point five tipping point, and nothing, nothing happened." Of course.
1: Yeah. Those. Well, those. Of course. So we had the giveaway with the tip with the two degree and the one and a half degree so-called limits is it's the baseline is the pre-industrial era, era and we don't really first of all we don't really know what the global temperature was then so you've got a very uncertain baseline so which renders the whole but the given the reason it's a giveaway is it's because it's ideological because the original sin of modern civilization is the industrial revolution so we've got to go back to when the planet was pure and before it had been was spoiled, by, besmirched by the Industrial Revolution. So that's what it's about. And it wasn't scientists that came up with the two-degree limit. It was actually European environment ministers that came up with the two-degree. And then you had the small island states um, going around saying, oh, well, our islands are all going to be inundated uh, by rising sea levels by the two-degree limit, so we've got to go for one and a half-degree and this And this, this is even more... This is, as well, this is completely bogus, because you know how coral atolls are formed by the slow substance of the ocean bed. They actually benefit from a rise from rising sea levels because coral you basically they get more coral builder and they're formed out of out of dead coral as the coral dies, it gets piled up and that that's why they've got lovely white sandy beaches. And so it's completely it is completely fraudulent. Of the small island states go, but they—they they are the sort of—it's—they're the climate change sob story stuff. So that's how we ended up with one and a half degrees, which is how we end up with net zero by 20 by 2050 by by mid-century. It is completely—that is completely bogus and spurious, completely made up. And then, of course, then they say. Oh, scientists tell us there'll be these two. Having the politicians having decided this, then the scientists are called it to say, oh, well, yeah, it's good. There's a tipping point there.
0: Kind of interesting that we're not supposed to listen to anything from anybody connected with uh, hydrocarbon fuels because they have financial incentives. But then we're supposed to listen to these small island state people who get enormous amounts of money if uh, we believe this tale, and they get nothing if uh, this tale is uh, found out to be bogus. So they have a pretty big... They have a huge financial incentive to sell this of course and that's why they're doing it yeah
1: and also it's given them a standing in the world because it makes them really important we are the victims of climate change you know feel sorry for us and we turn up to the un climate conference and we're the ones who are going to and uh, um president Macron of france he had a had a climate conference to celebrate i think it was the f- five years or something like that after of the paris agreement and he said Six of the heads of state behind me aren't going to be here in ten or twenty years' time because they're going to be drowned. Drag- I mean, they, you know, they love all that stuff, don't they?
0: They absolutely love it. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty farcical. Um, anything else you want to cover here? I think that's, I think we've covered quite quite a lot. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time. This is this is great stuff. I hope to do it again. Yeah, I look yeah. forward to it. Uh, talk to you next time, Rupert Darwall.